you're not seeing things, turn to Hebrews 12 this morning. You're thinking we're supposed to still be in chapter 6, and that is true. And we'll get back to chapter 6. But there's something going on tonight, right? A little something going on tonight. And the book of Hebrews actually carries with it a sports analogy. And so it's that that I want us to look at from Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 to 3. And we're talking this morning about the subject matter, live to make an impact. Live to make an impact. Now folks, before we read our text, I want to just encourage you to think about four things. And these are actually going to be our points in the message today. But as we begin reading the chapter, what does he say? Where are we to look? We're to look around. We're to look around. Okay? We're going to talk about that. And then secondly, he's going to tell us that we need to look within. And then after that, he's going to tell us we need to look ahead. And then finally, we need to look up. We're going to talk about each of those. The gaze of the believer as we're involved in the Christian race. The gaze of the believer, what's going to help us in our own individual race? To look around, to look within, to look ahead, and to look up. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, one of the favorite in the New Testament of many. Powerful words that have volumes to say to each of us about how we live our Christian lives. And are we living to make an impact? Lord, a lot of times we think Christian growth is just going to happen. We're just, we're going to make an impact and we're going to grow. Help us to see today that there are disciplines that you call for in a Christian's life. Just as an athlete, as a runner has certain disciplines in his or her life, there are to be disciplines in our lives. 
May we be found faithful. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. For you Chicago Bears fans, I have a illustra- probably one of my favorite historical illustrations that comes from the days of World War II. It's a true story about Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to an aircraft carrier in the South Pacific. And one day he was out on a mission with his squadron. And he looked down at his fuel gauge and he knew something was very much wrong. Either his fuel gauge was broken or someone had failed to fill up his tank. But he couldn't take a chance. He broke off from his squadron and he returned to the aircraft carrier. And when he was getting close to the aircraft carrier, he couldn't believe his eyes. There was a squadron of Japanese Zeros honing in on the aircraft carrier. And the aircraft carrier was vulnerable. And he knew it was up to him. And so Butch O'Hare began engaging those uh, Japanese uh, fighters in an air battle. And one after one, he began picking them out of the sky. Until finally, the few remaining Japanese zeros broke off and they returned to wherever it was they were going. Butch O'Hare was recognized as a national hero and given one of the nation's highest military honors. O'Hare International Airport in Chicago is named after him. He was a hero. But that's not all to his story. Let's back up a little bit and talk about another man in Chicago. Some years earlier, there was a man by the name of Easy Eddie. In those days, Al Capone virtually owned the city of Chicago. Capone's mob was involved in bootlegging whiskey, in murder, and in prostitution. Easy Eddie was Al Capone's lawyer. And Easy Eddie kept Al Capone out of jail. And he did a good job doing so. And so in return, Easy Eddie was paid an enormous sum of money by Al Capone and the mob. And he lived in the lap of luxury. But Easy Eddie had a soft spot in his heart. It was his son. Eddie saw that his son had the best of everything. And despite his own involvement with the mob, he tried to teach his son right from wrong. He wanted him to grow up a better man than he himself had turned out to be. But there were two things that Easy Eddie could not give his son. He could not give his son a good name and a good example. And so deciding that being able to leave a good name and a good example was worth more than all the riches in the world, Easy Eddie made a very courageous move. He went to the authorities 
And he laid out all of the plans of the mob and all of the plans of Al Capone and told what all they were involved in and what they had done and what they were about to do. He ended up even testifying in court against Al Capone and the mob. He knew the price that he would pay for doing this. But again, he decided that the example for his son, leaving his son a good name, was worth it. And so he did it. And sure enough, within a year, on a lonely back street in Chicago, Easy Eddie was gunned down and murdered by somebody connected with Al Capone. But he accomplished his objective. You say, now what do these two men, Butch O'Hare and Easy Eddie, have in common? One's a war hero and one's a lawyer for the mob. Well, here's the connection. Butch O'Hare was that son of Easy Eddie. He certainly lived to make an impact in the final analysis. Folks, most of us will never be heroes in the sight of the world. But we can be heroes in the faith. We can live to make a a, a life of impact that way. And it ought to be the goal of every Christian to live that way. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And we're going to see that this is not something that happens by accident. We're going to see in our text today that the Christian life is a life of purpose and a life of discipline. Now let's see how the writer develops that. The first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is that we must look around. I told you that was coming back, right? We must look around. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I love the sports analogies in the New Testament. Now, I think I've mentioned to you before that... Uh, the, the title in the King James Version of Hebrews, it, the title itself is not inspired. The title in the KJV says that this is the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. That was a title added later on by somebody. We don't know who. That's not a part of the inspired text. It's generally agreed that the Apostle Paul was absolutely not the writer of the book of Hebrews. And I agree with that. Because in chapter 2 of the book, he describes himself as somebody who had to rely upon the testimony of the apostles to get his message. That's, That's not the way the Apostle Paul would have ever described his ministry. In fact, in the book of Galatians, he specifically said he didn't rely on the apostles He relied on Jesus himself. But Paul, just like the writer of Hebrews, loved sports analogies. The New Testament talks about running. It talks about fighting. It talks about boxing. It talks about finishing our race. Sports analogies, I think if some of the New Testament writers were alive today, probably their favorite channel on cable that they would subscribe to would be ESPN. 
There's so many great analogies that come out of the world of sports that have to do with our Christian lives. And we see that here. The writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, begins by telling us that we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us and this great cloud of witnesses serves as a motivation for us. Now, who is this great cloud of witnesses? Well, all we got to do is go back to chapter 11 to read about them. Chapter 11 is the roll call of faith. And we read in chapter 11 about this great cloud of witnesses and it's people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Rahab and Deborah and Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel. The list goes on and on and on. In fact, probably most of your favorite characters in in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyway are mentioned in chapter 11. You and I studied about these characters as kids in Sunday school growing up in VBS. This cloud of witnesses isn't simply wanting to be entertained. They're not mere spectators. In fact, I don't know of anywhere in the Bible that the Bible talks about those in heaven are looking down on us, sort of spying on us, everything that we do. You'll hear somebody say, I know grandma is up in heaven and she's looking down over me daily watching everything that I do. Well, she may be, I don't know, but the Bible doesn't teach us that anywhere. The point in Hebrews is not that they look at us, but rather we look at them. Now, how do we look at them? They're gone. How do we look at them? We look at them through the testimony of Scripture. We read about their lives in the Bible. And there's one thing the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand. All of these saints of old, they're gone now. They're not in their race. They have finished their race. His point is, you're the one in the arena now. You're the one in the race now. And God wants to work in your life the way he worked in their lives. God's the same yesterday and today and forever. The things that we learn from them are things that we can learn about our own lives as we live in our relationship to Christ. We have a powerful legacy when we look at these people in Hebrews chapter 11. It reminds me of when Napoleon conquered Alexandria, Egypt on July 1st, 1798. When he conquered Egypt in just three weeks, he gathered his army at the, at the foot of all those Egyptian pyramids. And he said, gentlemen, four centuries look down on us now. Well, we could say more than four centuries... Many centuries of faithful Christians bear witness to us. What is it that we learn from some of them? If if we're to look around at this great cloud of witnesses and gain some inspiration from them, what, what do we learn? Well, we would learn from Abraham what it means to live by faith, right? 
God spoke to Abraham when he was in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and said, Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And, and Abraham had to step out in faith. And when Abraham stepped out in faith, he didn't even know where he was going exactly. As he stepped out in faith, God showed him the way. And he got there in the promised land and things didn't go so easy for him, right? In fact, there was a famine in the land. So what did Abraham do? He fled down to Egypt. Running down to Egypt was always a bad thing in the Bible because it signified that you were trusting in man rather than trusting in God. He ran down to Egypt and he got in trouble down there and he had to come back with his tail tucked between his legs, right? And then he had Isaac, the son of promise. And yet God says, I want you to sacrifice him. The pagans around him would sacrifice their children. Do you love me as much as, as, they, love, as they love their false deities? He didn't want him to sacrifice Isaac. He just wanted to see Abraham's heart. Abraham passed that test. We learn tests of faith from Abraham, don't we? And then how about Joseph? Joseph was a young man who always did the right thing. And he got him in trouble. He must have been a good looking young man. And and Potiphar's wife wanted to have intimate relations with him. And he ran and left his cloak behind. And she accuses him. Look at what this Hebrew's done. And he gets thrown in prison and stays there. And he interprets these dreams. God's given him him the ability to interpret all these dreams. And and, and, um, one of those guys gets out of prison. He says, remember, tell him about me. And he doesn't. But then Pharaoh has a dream, right? And, And what's this mean? Oh, there's a man in prison that can interpret your dreams. Joseph comes out. And so Joseph goes from in prison to prime minister in the land. He ends up delivering the Hebrew people. They come down there. Jacob's other sons come down there to get food in the famine. And Joseph conceals his identity until the last minute to them. And then finally they say, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to be in trouble because we sold Joseph into slavery. We were going to kill him, but then we sold him into slavery. We're in trouble now. And he says, don't worry, brothers. I'm going to take care of you. Because what you meant for evil, God used for good. The writer of Hebrews is saying, church, when you look around at these witnesses, you learn some powerful things, some powerful motivating things. In each and every one of their cases, you'll learn the Christian, the the life of faith was not an easy life. You had to count the cost. There was opposition. And yet, these Old Testament saints counted the cost, faced the opposition, were faithful to God. And they died in faith, not seeing all of the promises yet. But yet, they died in faith. And God is going to be true to all of His promises. They're not going to be completed or perfected apart from us, He says. But God's going to reward each and every one of them. But the point is, they stayed in their race. 
He's writing to people that are thinking they're going to leave Christianity and go back to the temple. Because it's tough being a Jewish person, being a Christian. They're being persecuted. They're being persecuted by family members, by their fellow Jews, by the authorities. And they weren't used to that. And some of them are thinking about, we're going to go back to the temple in the Old Testament ways. It's going to be easier. And he's telling them, no, 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 no. In your race to live a life of impact, look at these characters out of your Old Testament scripture and you ought to learn from them. They ought to be motivating factors to you. They have a lot to teach you about continuing on in the heat of battle. So look at their lives. Look at the cost that they paid. And look at the faithfulness of God in their lives. Their God was faithful to them and their God is your God and so you need to press on. Well, secondly, he encourages them that we must look within. Look at what he says. He says, uh, let us also, there in verse 1, let us also lay aside. I like the NIV here, throw off. And I'm going to say something about that in a minute. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so uh, closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Talking about looking within, he says, first of all, we must look within to cast aside hindrances or encumbrances. It's a word that refers to weights. But probably the NIV gets it right when it says throw off. Because what's the imagery having to do with the race? The imagery is probably clothing. We've got runners in here. And I can guarantee you when they're getting ready to go up to a starting line, they, they don't put on layer after layer after layer after layer. They don't put on their heaviest boots and belts and coats and all that. What do they begin to do? It may be cold outside and they're wrapped up, but at the beginning of the race, what do you do? I remember from my cross-country days in high school, we would, we would come out of clothing we would throw it off. In the ancient world, the athletes in the first century world, a lot of them practiced and competed in the nude. Boy, now that's throwing off clothing, isn't it? But that's, that's the image that he's given to them here, throwing off, throw off any encumbrances. In other words, he's telling them, travel light. Christians, you and I have got to deal with the clutter in our life. Do you have any clutter in your life? Do you have any, do you have any storage rooms or closets or outbuildings at home that are just filled with all kinds of clutter? You got any of those? Some lives are like that. Lots of clutter. Lots of unnecessary things. Lots of distractions. And and you know, some of these things are not bad in and of themselves. But for you, they're a hindrance. Because they're in the way of your Christian life. 
One of the best examples I know of is a, is a man who uh, stood right here at this church and preached back in the days we were in the chapel. Robert Shaw, Rock Solid Ministries. Now he's the pastor at the chapel by the sea at Garden City where a lot of youth groups go. Robert Shaw absolutely loved, he got addicted to golf. Came a point in his life, he said, I'm playing golf when I ought to be doing ministry. I ought to be studying God's Word. I ought to be praying. I ought to be doing things to advance the kingdom of Christ. And, and it, it, God convicted him one day that he was addicted to golf. Is golf bad in and of itself? No. But if you're somebody that's a minister of the gospel and it's consuming your life to where it's compromising your witness for Christ, then it's, that, then it's an encumbrance, it's a hindrance. And Robert Shaw said, there came a day in my life that I had to let God deal with that in my life. Now, if you've ever played golf with me, you know I don't spend much time in golf. <laughs> I get my money's worth, man. I play the woods, the water, the sand traps. The, I, and these guys that shoot 80 or 90, man, you're not getting your money's worth until you get up around 120, 130. Encumber, are there any encumbrances in your life? Anything in your life weighing you down? Keeping you from being all you could be for Christ. Next he mentions the black and white things. Sin. Cast aside sin. The sin which clings so closely. Now, now he's talking about transgressions. Not just good things maybe in and of themselves but bad for you because they are hindrances. Now he's talking about transgressions in your life. Christian, what about those? For some, it may be laziness. For others, fear. For others, lust. For others, gossip. For some, it might be a bad temper. For others, a negative or critical spirit. For others, it might be holding on to grudges or unforgiveness. Just any kind of sin. For these Hebrew Christians, it's generally believed. What, what they were dealing with was unbelief. Some of them were going to go leave Christ, go back to the temple. And that's why the writer says, lay aside the sin. There's actually the definite article, the, in the text. There's something very definite he has in mind in their lives. But put your own sin in the blank. Put your own sin there. I think he leaves that a little bit vague intentionally so that you know, if he names something, you might say, hey, I'm scot-free. I'm off the hook. I'm not guilty of that. But the way it is now, you can put your own sin in the blank. And notice what he says about sin. What does it do? It clings, doesn't it? It, it entangles. You ought to read about the strangler fig tree that's in some tropical environments. The strangler fig will wrap around a host tree and it'll send tentacles into the host tree, gets all its nutrients out and it'll, it'll drain that host tree dry. 
strangler fig. That's a pretty good image of sin, isn't it? Clings. Just ends up strangling us. Somebody wisely said one time, sin takes us further than we wanted to go. It keeps us longer than we wanted to stay. And it costs us more than we wanted to pay. Sin can end up disqualifying your testimony. You won't lose your salvation. But you and I can end up losing our testimony. And tragically, we've seen Christians that have gone that very route. Now, there is sin in our lives that if we don't repent of and we just continue as a pattern, the Bible says if there's something like that, that would be a sign of lostness. That you weren't sa- it's not that you lose your salvation, it shows you were never saved. That's why, you know, Jesus talked about if your right eye offends you, cast it out. It, he's giving a metaphor there. He's not talking about gouging out your eye. He, but anyway, he's saying your right eye offends you, take it out. Better to go into eternal life with one eye than to be cast body and soul into hell. One of my best friends, Dr. Kurt Horn, is a New Testament and Greek professor down at North Greenville University. They were teaching about metaphors one time and they said, Professor, Billy can do that. He said, Billy can do what? Billy can pluck his eye out. He said, oh, show him, Billy, show him. Billy plucked his eye out and laid it down on his desk. Said, yeah, I, I use that on first dates to see if there'll ever be a second date. I pluck my eye out, and if the girl's okay with that, I know she's worth asking out for a second date. <laughs> so Je- Jesus did say, there's, there's, there comes a point if there's some sin in your life, you just that's the pattern of your life. That's an indication of lostness. But we know for sin in a, in a Christian's life, it's not like that. It's not, we're not going to lose our salvation. But again, we will lose our testimony. And folks, it doesn't have to be big stuff. There was a woman a number of years ago that walked across the United States. She ended up in Florida and the news media was, they were interviewing her at different points along the way. And when she finished her walk across America, they said, what gave you the biggest challenges? The deserts? No. Travel those at night. It was cooler. Mountains? No. She said the biggest challenges were the little teeny tiny grains of sand that would get in my shoes. It could be something little in your life. But you hear what he's saying as you look within at encumbrances and sins. Folks, you have to take radical action against sin. You have to take radical action. He says, throw it off. Get rid of it. Churches can be true of corporate bodies. Again, look at those seven letters in the book of Revelation. Certain sins those churches were guilty of. That Christ was calling on them to take decisive action against. Some churches not involved in missions. 
You can't be a New Testament church without being mission-minded. Some don't want to do that, though. Costs too much money. No, it costs too much money not to do it. So thank you for your commitment to missions. Some churches, negative and critical spirit might start in a little group over here, a little group over there, and it spreads, infects the whole body. Charles Page, First Baptist Church of Charlotte, deceased now. He tells the story of preaching at a church up in North Carolina. He couldn't believe his eyes, center aisle. People on each side of the church didn't talk to anybody. He said, what's going on? They talked to them years ago. These, these descendants now didn't know what had happened. There'd been something go, go on. And the family members now coming after, they said, neither side still to this day talks to the other side. He read them out of 1 John, if you, uh, if you don't love the brethren, you abide in death. Ephesus, they had lost their first love of Jesus. They were still busy for the Lord, but they didn't love the Lord like they used to. He was calling them to repent. Some churches in that group were compromised with the world. They had started compromising with the authorities around them and losing their witness. Jesus called on them to repent of that. So it's not just in individual lives. It can be in a corporate body that you have to lay aside sin. But again, he's saying here, you've got to deal with it decisively and radically. Thirdly, he says we must look ahead. Notice what he says here. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, it's interesting. You ought to do a study sometime on the different postures that the Bible talks about. There's the, there's the, one, of, one of the postures is running. I'll get back to that one here. But one posture sits, speaks of sitting. We sit in the heavenlies in, in Christ Jesus Ephesians 4 talks about our walking. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Ephesians 6 talks about standing. We need to put on the full armor of God so we can stand strong against the evil one. Our text here speaks of running. Running the race. The focus on effort and endurance. And he says to them, run your race, run to the end, run in spite of trials, in spite of difficulties, in spite of disappointments, in spite of opposition. In fact, the very word race here is the Greek word agona. We get our word agony from that. A race can be agony, can be hard. Gene and Mickey, what is about the 19-mile mark? A lot of them hit, hit a wall. Some of them talk about hitting a wall. Agony, but you press on. It's always too soon to quit. Folks, you've got to remember looking ahead in your race. It's always too soon to quit. Don't allow anything to knock you out of the race. Maybe somebody says something. Maybe somebody does something to discourage you. But your Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And notice what he says about this race. It is the race set before you. You have your race. I have my race. 
One thing in the Christian life, sometimes we get aggravated at people because uh, somebody else is not like us. Well, that's not how the body is. We're different in the body. You have your race, I have my race. The person on the pew next to you has their race. He says it's the race set before you. And it's set before you too. In other words, you can't name all the conditions God does. It's your race that is set before you. God names the conditions. But you have to keep going. Another athletic illustration. 1986, New York City Marathon. 20,000 runners entered the race. But what's memorable about that race is not who won, but who finished last. His name is Bob Wyland. He finished in the 19,413th position. He completed the marathon in four days, two hours, 47 minutes, and 17 seconds. What made his race so memorable is the fact that he ran the 26 miles on his hands. You see, in the Vietnam War, he lost both legs way up high, just had stumps. And he would push up and sit down and push up and sit down. Along the way, of course, as you can imagine, you can go on the you can go on websites, read all about Bob Wyland, how the media got I mean, it became a media event time he finished the race. Four days later, but he finished. He kept looking ahead to the end. And he didn't let pain or effort or fatigue or anything keep him from finishing his race. He didn't let somebody discourage him. Oh, Bob, do you actually look at you, Bob? What makes a man with no legs think he's going to finish this? Somebody could have done it. He didn't let any of that stop him. He's telling us here, you look ahead. Keep your eye on the end. So look around at other witnesses. Look within. Sin and hindrances in your life. Look ahead. Keep your eyes on, on the ultimate goal. And then finally, he talks about looking up. Look at what he says. Looking to Jesus. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Looking to him. The phrase here talks about a single-eyed focus. Keeping your focus on Him. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. Philippians 1.6 says, He who hath begun a good work in you will continue it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He finishes what He starts in you. Amen? 
We're kept by his power, not by our own power. And he finishes his work in us. So we need to keep our eyes on him. He says that we need to consider him. It's a word that's only used here in the New Testament. It's a mathematical term. It's a mathematical term we get our word logarithm from this and it literally talks about adding everything up he's saying look at everything Christ went through add it all up every insult against Jesus every single insult against him every single point of rejection Every hateful thing anybody ever said to him or did to him and then all of those lashes Think about all those lashes they did against Jesus. That crown of thorns on his head. The mockery. He saved others. Let him save himself. All that mockery. Finally they crucified him. And the writer of Hebrews is saying when your race gets difficult, you need to look at Jesus and add up everything he went through. Don't miss any of it. That's the emphasis. Don't miss any of it. Don't miss any of the hardship he went through. Add it all up. And then he's saying, up next to Jesus, have you really gone through anything? No. Up next to Jesus, you and I can't complain. So when you get discouraged, you need to look up to him and remember what he went through. And look to him now because he's raised from the dead and he's your intercessor and he's your advocate. So if anybody can help you through your trials and tribulations, he's the one that can. And there one day at the finish line, think about it. There stands Noah. There's Abraham, there's Sarah, there's Deborah, there's Rahab, there's Joshua, there's Moses, there's Aaron. There's Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of these saints of the Old Testament. And they're saying, welcome home. But best of all, there's Jesus. And he's saying... Welcome home. Welcome home. I wonder if I'm speaking to somebody this morning who needs to get in the race by being born again. Some people say, oh, I'll I'll be saved when I get good enough. Well, you'll never get good enough. Come to Christ. That's what qualifies you to get in the race. Repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ. Come to Christ. Does anybody here need to come to Christ this morning? The Holy Spirit's been working on your heart. Are there Christians here who need to get back in the race? Maybe you've grown lazy. Maybe you're half in and half out. Maybe somebody has done something or said something to discourage you. Maybe even years ago and that still hinders you today. Get back in the race. Is there some burden? 
Some encumbrance, again, may be a good thing in and of itself, but for you, it has become a distraction. You need to lay it aside. Or maybe there is some very definite transgression that the Holy Spirit's been convicting you about. You need to lay that aside. In church, above all, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't put your eyes on man. Put your eyes on Jesus. And remember, as the resurrected Lord, He's not only your Savior, But he's your advocate before the Father. And he's your intercessor. And he said he would send his Holy Spirit to teach you, to comfort you, to give you peace. And to give you strength when you need it the most. And he always keeps his word. When you think about the testimony of the Bible, the work of the Trinity in us... From the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says, Before time, the Father chose you. The Son redeemed you by His blood. And the Holy Spirit seals you and keeps you. When you think about it that way, each member of the Trinity involved in our redemption We really don't have any excuse, do we? We really don't have an excuse. Run your race. Fight the good fight of faith. Keep on keeping on to the end. Look to Jesus. You live that way and you will live to make an impact.